and good morning. This is Rob Behrens and welcome to the latest edition of Radio Ombudsman. My guest this morning is one of the big beasts of health service regulation, Sir David Behan. Sir David is the Chief Executive of the Care Quality Commission, an appointment he has held since 2012. He is consistently rated as one of the most powerful people in the health service by the esteemed health service journal. He has a social work background, unusual for people who become uh, mandarins. He has been Director of Social Services in Local Government, Director General of Social Care at the Department of Health, and the first Chief Inspector of the Commission for Social Care Inspection. And he is the person most responsible for turning around the Care Quality Commission from its troubled early days and its failure to highlight unacceptable care in a number of care homes and hospitals, including Morecambe Bay. Sir David was knighted in the 2017 New Year's Honours List for Services to Health and Social Care. Uh, Welcome, Sir David. Uh, We have the Red Rose of Lancashire flying over Millbank today in your honour. It's very good to to have you with us. So the first question for guests on this programme is to ask them briefly to describe where they were born and brought up. Yeah, well, good morning, everybody. Um, I was uh, born and brought up in Blackburn in Lancashire in uh, 1955. My parents were uh, textile uh, mill workers. Uh, that was the industry of Blackburn. And my mother was a spinner and my father was uh, a maintenance electrician. It was a very tight, close-knit family. Uh, my mother's family was large and um, uh, very close-knit. My upbringing was a Catholic upbringing and uh, I've got very many happy memories of the closeness and tightness of that. Uh, we didn't have a lot materially, but uh, in terms of love and affection, I was uh, I was very well blessed. Really. So um, I went to school in Blackburn, went through um, the education system, and um, I did voluntary uh, work at school, working with single homeless people. And it was understanding the issues around social justice that led me to my choice of career to go into social work. I wanted a job that really did something about how unjust society was and some of the issues that confronted single homeless people who were severely and enduringly mentally ill, who were substance and drug dependent, led me to think quite broadly about social justice and how equal was society. And I wanted to do a job basically which made a difference to that and that led me into social work. So you you went, I think, to Bradford University and you studied social studies there. Did that include social work training? Yeah, um, I chose, uh, as I said, to I thought I'd probably do a geography degree if I was being truthful at the beginning of um, my year levels and probably end up doing something like quantity surveying. But this voluntary work led me into thinking of a career in social work. Bradford University at the time offered a degree in applied social studies and the social work qualification. It was seen as being the leading course of its time. I have to say it was a course which um, didn't disappoint me at all. It was um, great academics uh, that taught on the course and some very practical experience in social work. Uh, as I say, that prepared me for a career in social work. I feel very blessed and privileged to have done the jobs that I've done over the years. And um, the job that I do today, I think, is just about as much about social justice as that very first job as a children's social worker uh, working in um, the Wakefield Council um, when I began there in 1978. So you were both a social worker and a director of social services before you went into Whitehall. What kinds of things did you learn from being a social worker which you took with you when you left the 
practice? Yeah, no, very good question. It's interesting, I still find myself drawing on that social work education when it comes to psychology and human behaviour, about how people behave, why they behave as they do, um, how to develop and form relationships and use relationships as an agent of influence and change is essentially what the social work task is. And you could argue that that's exactly what my job is today, about using relationships to affect and influence change. It continued to reinforce my view about undertaking a job which makes a contribution to making a difference in society. I think the job that um, the jobs that I've had throughout my career, I feel very lucky, have all been about making a difference, and and that's mattered to me, Rob, throughout my career. Getting up and going to work each day, and some of these jobs have been tough. You've got to be clear with yourself about why you're doing these jobs and what is it that you want to get out of them. Mm. And um, I've always felt that I've wanted to make a contribution to uh, making uh, society more socially just and uh, helping people uh, in terms of their experiences of health and care, ensuring people get access to good quality care. And um, I wanted to do that as a social worker and that when I was dealing with children and families. And that's what I hope I'm still trying to do today. And it's that golden thread, if you wish, of wanting to make a difference and belief in social justice that has driven me on throughout my career. Can you remember, when you were a social worker, whether you had a view about regulation? I think it's, again, a very good question. My recollection is that um, regulation is really something that came in not at the beginning of my social work career. I don't think it existed uh, then, if I'm being truthful. I think uh, regulation was something which has come in from the mid-80s onwards. And I think uh, if you look at the history of health and care, I think where there have been crises, uh, inquiries, uh, particularly in social work, the death of children in care or on the child protection register, there's largely been inquiries. And I think one of the levers that many governments have reached for over the past 30 or so years in the face of those crises is regulation. And I think you can almost chart the history of regulation and the introduction of regulation linked to some of these quite major events which yeah. have taken place, whether that uh, beginning of my career, the death of Maria Caldwell, yeah. Victoria Climbier, uh, baby Peter more recently, and there have been many in between which have shaped this, but you could run the same argument in relation to deaths in custody, um, the way that some people who have been in the high secure mental health system or have been compulsorily detained and the mental health legislation where crimes have been committed or incidents have taken place where there have been investigations or inquiries uh, can often lead to a regulatory response and of course in the health service with um, Mid-Staffordshire and Sir Robert Francis's report on Mid-Staffordshire mm. uh, part of the government's response was to look to CQC and develop a chief inspector of hospitals which is something that I've been doing since I took this job in 2012 so I think that link between events, inquiries and then regulation is one uh, that I've noticed and uh, as I say earlier in my career there wasn't a social services inspectorate, there was a social work service, it was seen as being advisory and offering guidance rather than a pure regulatory response. One more question about life before CQC, I mean you talked about a coherent thread going through your career which is self-evident but you've you've moved quite a lot of times you've moved from social work into management in local government you then moved into Whitehall before you took on the big job at the CQC and they had big jobs in Whitehall what was it like 
working in Whitehall in comparison to then going to CQC afterwards? Yeah, um, again, it was a real privilege to do the um, Director General job in, in the Department of Health. If I just go back to your opening question about my, my background, um, my mother was a product of her age. She passed the 11 plus, but she came from a big family. My grandfather was severely disabled and didn't work. So they were poor, not to put too fine a point on it. Um, having passed her 11 plus, she couldn't go to grammar school because they couldn't afford the school uniform. So she went to work in Textown, uh, as many women in her generation did. My father, again, came from a... a family which uh, his, his father was a labourer, uh, his mother worked in a textile mill, he went for a bursary for the grammar school and um, uh, there were two people in for the bursary and he came second, i.e. he didn't get it and um, you know through those accidents of education our lives are shaped and formed. What I took from my parents was um, uh, some working class messages about work hard and do well I think the subtext and then you don't have to work shifts in a textile mill like we have done but I think it was also about being very respectful of others, about treating others as you'd expect to be treated yourself. I think there was a, a Catholic tradition involved in that. Mine was a Catholic education. So this mixture of working class and religious influences began to shape my upbringing. And if I'm being truthful, Rob, when I left school uh, to go to university and become a social worker, I never dreamed that I'd uh, one day sit in an office on Whitehall and advise um, ministers and secretaries of state about national policy. But when I was doing the CSCI job and the Department of Health job became available, um, a wise friend of mine said to me, write your obituary. And uh, <laughs> the basic point of this was get to the end of your career and look back and what would you like to be remembered for? And um, boys from Blackburn, from my upbringing, didn't take jobs in Whitehall. That's not how I felt I'd been brought up. But the write your obituary point was, how would I know that I could ever advise ministers on social care policy unless I went to try it? And for me, this was um, about that belief about wanting to make a difference. Um, and um, I couldn't look back on my career and said, if only or I could have, unless I went to test myself and try myself in that environment. So that is a very personal reason why I went to uh, go and do that job. But I also thought the time was right to look at how the future funding of social care and the policy environment for social care could be further developed. And I very much saw that as, as being the job. I, I was lucky to be offered the job. And a massive, massive privilege to um, undertake these jobs. You know, when I was there, we did a, a one green paper and two white papers on the future funding of social care. I think that will inform the current debate about the green paper that the government are talking about publishing this summer. But we published the first national dementia strategy. We did a lot of work on services for learning disabilities. We took forward the Autism Act. The Law Commission review, which led eventually to the Care Act, was all put in place um, uh, during my time in the department. I worked at the transition from Blair to Brown as Prime Minister and from uh, a Labour government to a, what we uh, experienced as a coalition government. So these were massive times where I was able to hopefully make a contribution to the policy environment, but, yeah. f but from the inside. And I think, you know, the deal when I went to the Department of Health was take people with experience outside of the civil service who could bring that experience in. I think the deal was you come in for five, six, seven years, um, four, five, six, seven years, 
and you use the benefits of that experience working alongside uh, career civil servants and um, it's for others to judge about how effective that period was but um, as I say it was a huge privilege to do that and uh, blend my experience with that more traditional career civil servant experience. I mean Whitehall is quite a closed community did you ever feel patronised by the London-centric elite? Uh, no, um, I think the, I, you talked about, um, well, let me say, you can take the boy out of Blackburn, but you can't take Blackburn out of the boy, so there was this bit about my upbringing. You know, I didn't, uh, I didn't go to private school, I didn't go to public school, I, I wasn't brought up uh, with the expectation of one day you will be uh, doing the most senior job. So one of the things I've had to struggle with over my career, uh, personally struggle with, I, um, I don't mean it's disabled me, but it's been an issue, is um, not having a chip on my shoulder about my background. And um, one of the things I learnt doing the CSCI job and the, and the Department of Health job is I could make a contribution, I could make a, an intellectual uh, contribution. I did know what the reality on the ground was because I'd been there and I'd done some of these jobs that we were talking about. And rather than saying uh, that I've got a deficit in my experience, I thought that was an asset that I could bring to bear on the work. Um, it is a meritocracy as a civil service. You are judged on whether you can do or you can't do the job. Um, but ultimately, you asked me about my social work experience. The civil service is a collection of people. They happen to be very talented, bright people at the interface of the most talented politicians of the day that we've got. And um, I think the thing I learned in social work and in local government, dealing with local government politicians, is these are people. So the virtues of integrity, honesty, reflection, listening hard to what others say, making judgments and being decisive were the skills that I'd learned through my career and they were the skills which uh, helped guide me through the, my time in the civil service and um, you know in the words uh, of get to the end of your career and then look back I, I'm, I am absolutely delighted to have had the opportunity to do that job and I believe it's helped me do the job I'm now doing because yeah. actually I understand a little bit about how government works from the inside not just uh, from the outside so um, an absolutely fabulous uh, opportunity for me and um, I, I don't regret it one bit. Just uh, focusing on CQC now I mean when you went there it was a mess there's no no hiding from that yeah. and you through the force of your intellect and character turned it around mm. could you reflect on that experience uh, a bit for us because there are people listening who work in organizations that also need turning around yeah it was the um, both the public accounts committee and the health select committee had both in their own ways said that cqc was not fit for purpose and when I took the job, I knew that a key role was to actually restore political, professional and public confidence in the work of the CQC. And um, recently, I would um, looked at my application form for the job. And in, in fact, that was one of the opening paragraphs about how I saw the job and what, what the job entailed. And to a certain extent, I had a loose and broad plan in my head about what we needed to do at CQC. And um, there are a number of elements to that plan which um, set about trying to implement, which I think have been key to the way that we've improved over, over this past uh, five, six years. Firstly, I think we needed to be really clear about our purpose. Why, why was CQC there? What was it there to do? And how was it going to do it? CQC did have a purpose. It was laid out in the 
2008 Act. Um, but if you spoke to people external to CQC, you'd get many different views about why it existed and what it was there to do. Mm. And just as troubling, if you spoke to people within CQC, you got different views about why it existed. And the one thing that I was absolutely clear about is any organisation that can't be clear about its purpose is going to fail. So we began to do some work on a, a strategy. We published that strategy, 2013 to 16 strategy, where we consulted quite heavily in the development of that strategy. And one of the key aspects of that consultation was on our our purpose. And during that period, I'd have conversations with people internally and externally, and it was quite, they were very contested uh, conversations. Some of them were about whether regulation per se makes a difference, and that I, I see as being more ideological, if you wish, but accepting we've got a regulator, then how we make that regulator effective and efficient was uh, what we were looking to do. We developed a statement of purpose, which um, is to make sure that people who use health and care services receive services which are safe, effective, compassionate and high quality, and we encourage services to improve. And that was our statement of purpose. We consulted recently on our 16 to 21 strategy, and we asked the question, should we change that statement of purpose, both to our stakeholders and to our staff? And the universal view was, no, we shouldn't. People, it's settled. When I go to conferences now and speak internally and externally, my first slide is always our statement of purpose. I won't make a presentation unless I put that slide up. But it's not an issue that I find is contested anymore, Rob. It's something that people have accepted. There might be the ideological issue about whether regulation makes a difference, but why we exist is not. Second thing I did is look at the people that we've got in the organisation. I knew we needed to um, develop those people and we created a new senior leadership team. And I think the statement of purpose and a new leadership team was absolutely critical to our ability to move forward. We had to change our methodologies very quickly. Uh, my view is we either change quickly or I thought CQC was facing abolition. Uh, I think we were in the last chance saloon. So having been clear about our purpose, brought in a new senior leadership team, we set about changing the way that we uh, inspected we then needed to do the second bit of the people agenda. We needed to change the way we were organised, moving from generic inspectors on a generic inspection methodology to inspectors who would specialise using uh, methodologies which were bespoke to each of the sectors that were regulated, a much more specialist methodology, using intelligence and data much more to inform what we did. So there were some of the key changes we made. We've just come to the end of something that we started uh, over 24 months ago now, which is a big leadership development programme where everybody who manages and leads in the organisation has gone through a programme we've called Inspire. It's run by Ashridge, which is an international yeah. leadership development centre. We wanted to make sure we'd got the best. And I wanted every leader in the organisation to go through this development programme because it was important that when we talked about leadership and management, People meant the same things by this. We were able to have a conversation internally yeah. about how we wanted to lead. And this linked to another hugely important piece of work we did uh, on our values, um, where we had a conversation over a good nine months in the organisation about our values. And our values were uh, not what did we want to put on our recruitment literature and in our publicity material, but it was really about what kind of organisation do we want to be and did we want to be. And for me, this was much more about our behaviours, how we behave internally and how we behave with each other and how that then manifests itself with uh, how we 
speak to other people. So these were some of the key okay. ingredients of the plan that I brought. And I think if I look back on uh, on my period at CQC, there were some of the contributions, clear sense of purpose, good values, good leadership team driving forward, and engaging with a staff who've got to deliver these new inspection methodologies. That's coherent. It sounds quite seamless. Uh, I mean, what was the greatest difficulty that you had? Let me test a couple of things. What about the bodies in jurisdiction? Were they helpful to you in the transition? What did they want? Did they want you to be more effective or or less effective at at what you were doing? Really good question. Um, I think there were two things that that we needed to do, Bob. I needed to engage staff that worked within the organisation. There's a lot of research evidence now and experience from successful organisations that successful organisations deliver what they've been set up to do, whether it's making widgets or, in our case, it's actually carrying out regulation. But those organisations also attend to the health of their people, the emotional and psychological health of their people. And effectively, happy and contented staff equals happy and contented stakeholders. Uh, The evidence is there in nursing as well from a Florence Nightingale School of Nursing at King's. Happy nurses equals happy patients. Mm. You see it in industry and retail and a whole number of other industries. So a big part of what I've tried to do is make sure we engage with staff. I regard my own personal performance indicator as being our staff engagement score within our staff survey. And I've paid a lot of attention to the staff survey. Uh, during my time at CQC, we've managed that's managed to hold a line. Uh, if I'm being truthful, I'd wanted it to improve more than it has done, and it hasn't. And that's um, you know because this is difficult stuff. Improving engagement in organisations is difficult, but nevertheless, that's what I see our job is. And um, when my successor is appointed in the next uh, few weeks, I hope they'll pick that up and begin to run with that as well. And in terms of the jurisdiction point. I think we had a wide spectrum of views, Rob. I think there are people who think that regulation is burdensome, there's too much of it and it shouldn't exist. Uh, And I think that goes right to the core of what is the purpose of regulation. I think there are people who see the importance of regulation and that independent perspective that's brought and um, they want that regulation in place but they want it to be effective and efficient and good. And then I think there are some people who just don't want regulation, they're not used to it. So if I look at CQC, adult social care providers were used to regulation. They felt um, the early days of CQC had not given them what they wanted, which was an effective regulator. And I think they were willing as on to improve and to be better. General practitioners in the main, you know, we had motions of non-cooperation in CQC passed by the Royal College of General Practice and the BMA. They didn't want regulation. They were... They had no history and tradition of using regulation and um, we needed to work with them to establish our legitimacy to use the uh, question back onto yourself. And then in acute and mental health care, there was more experience of regulation, but there was a real sense of this was a burden it didn't add value. I think if we look now uh, over a period of time, because we've worked hard at stakeholder management, I've had... Lots of conversations with chairs and chief exec of NHS Trust. Um, NHS Providers of Trade Association have arranged for me to get feedback. They've arranged for dinners, bringing together people, uh, chief exec and chair level that we've inspected to give 
feedback to us in a confidential setting yeah. uh, where we've listened to that and received that feedback and use that feedback to inform what we do and how we do it with the Royal College of GPs and the BMA, even when they were passing motions of no confidence, we've carried on meeting them, uh, carried on working with them, listening to what they do. Some of those conversations have um, uh, really been for the college and the BMA to state their position in relation to it. I've been quite practical and pragmatic about this, saying you know, the legislation is that we will regulate, we will do the job we've been set up to do, we'd like to do that with you and work out a way to do that and we've sat down and worked out how we can do the job and uh, interestingly you know the both the Royal College of GPs and the BMA have been using the results of our first round of comprehensive inspections where we rated 90% of GPs as being good or outstanding uh, they now use that figure in their presentations um, I think the opposition from NHS trusts about our, our work um, I think our ratings have now been the currency that most chief execs want to be measured on, where they want to aspire to being good, uh, and once they're good, they want to aspire to be outstanding. So I think what we've seen over the past six or so years is a move from where the currency of the CQC inspections was low, quite frankly, to one where the currency is now something which is being used to inform the way that people lead and manage their services. Okay, so I can see consistent themes in this. So you need technical competence. You need an ability to effectively communicate with bodies and jurisdiction. And you need independence. And without those three things, you're not going to get very far. But just looking at uh, health and social care, and you're referring to how you work with other bodies, and we work with you, we, we have common interests. You're also a body in jurisdiction for us. Don't you think, do you think, that the system is overcrowded in terms of uh, regulation? Yeah, um, I think the argument, uh, going back to your last question about our, our credibility, we weren't seen as credible in 2012. I think we're increasingly seen as credible. And I'd want to be humble about that. There's still more that we need to do. As Bill Shankly said, you're as good as your last game. And um, so we're constantly having to demonstrate through what we do and how we do it that we improve as well but I think what we've done is managed to establish the case for an independent quality and safety regulator. I think in terms of the oversight and using regulation in its broadest definition there is an awful lot of uh, activity and I think the recent announcements about NHS England and uh, NHS Improvement beginning to work together much more effectively, having joint appointments and is an attempt to reduce some of the mm. that crowded territory, that crowded uh, terrain. Uh, going back to 2012, uh, there was a lot of discussion about CQC merging with what was then Monitor. Uh, that discussion has gone away now and the conversation is how does NHS Improvement, which brings together the Trust Development Authority and Monitor together, uh, allied with NHS England, with CQC's role, looking to continue as an independent organisation uh, about quality and safety. I think that's a good thing. I think that goes back to being clear about our purpose and where our contribution in that wider system uh, sits. We weren't given the powers to look at independent, uh, look independently at complaints that people made. The predecessor bodies to CQC, the Healthcare Commission and CSCI, both have the ability to look at second stage complaints 
when CQC was created, that power was removed and invested back into the parliamentary and health ombudsman and the local government ombudsman. I think that was a good thing. I think that was another example of just removing some of the complexity that existed. Slightly paradoxically, it gives us lots of difficulties because people refer on to us uh, individual cases in the expectation that we all deal with those. And one of the things that um, we do is uh, work with you about um, the appropriateness of uh, how much we can look at the issues raised by an individual complainant and how much uh, complaints bodies, yourselves and the local government ombudsman, can address those cases. I think that's something we continue to need to work at. It's not always clear for individual citizens where the most appropriate place is to go. But I think both with yourselves and the local government ombudsman, we work hard at trying to be clear about that. And again, I think that's something we need to continue to work at in the future. I think you're never going to have one body that's going to look at everything that citizens want to raise. Sure. And therefore, uh, how we work with ombudsmen, and also the professional regulators, the GMC, the NMC, the Health and Care Professions Council, where it's a complaint against an individual professional is important. I don't think it's right that um, we look at all of those. So working with others is a key uh, responsibility that I think we've got. We, today is uh, the day we publish our own new strategy for the next three years. And what interests me is that many of the things you've mentioned about reforming the organisation are reflected in our own strategy about the importance of getting a core purpose right, of developing your people and reaching out when you're clear about what your values are. That, that's absolutely right. Now, one of our core objectives in the next three years is to be more transparent about what we're doing. At the moment, we ask bodies in jurisdiction to share our reports with CQC. I think what we should be doing is sending them to you anyway so that you uh, are aware of where bodies are falling down in terms of standards. We shouldn't have to rely on the goodwill of those bodies themselves. Mm. Um, presumably you would agree with that. Do, would you also agree that we could work together on better complaints handling in in these organisations so that issues can be resolved without them going to an external body. Uh, indeed, I think we talked earlier about defining moments in health and care and I think um, Robert Francis's report into Mid-Staffordshire and the government's response and particularly the response of the Secretary of State for Health, Jeremy Hunt, on openness and transparency I think has been a, a crucial issue over the past five or so years and will be into the future. Uh, so to your point on transparency, I think members of the general public will be surprised that we don't automatically share this information between yeah. us. Um, on the back of Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, there's a big debate about who can share what data with whom and in what circumstances. But I think when it comes to matters of protecting the public, uh, assuring the quality and safety of services, I don't think the public would have a problem with data being shared that actually makes that contribution. In fact, I think they would expect us to do it. So continuing to work at um, transparency and the way that we work as organisations right across the health and care system, I think is essential if we're to create uh, the transparency, which um, I believe people want to see. And uh, personally, uh, Rob, I think uh, probably that both you and I want to see in yeah. terms of our bodies. I think transparency provides oxygen and sunlight to allow 
good practices to grow in organisations. And um, this is one of the reasons why we focus on when things happen in organisations, things that don't go quite to plan, uh, problems happen. We've looked at how organisations learn from those incidents, those events, and actually use that learning to inform uh, their own improvement. I think that's absolutely critical. And uh, being open and transparent about that is, is essential. But being transparent is quite difficult. I think people who feel they've been wronged will often want somebody to be held to account uh, for that. Um, who can be blamed uh, will often be a question which is raised. I think we've got a media which um, grew bored with some of the inquiry reports in the 80s and 90s which said nobody is to blame, it's a system. Yeah. And um, they wanted to hold people to account for things that had gone wrong. I think you can look at the history of child abuse uh, and children's safeguarding to actually see uh, what I would refer to the geology of the changes in attitude about that, whereas Maria Colwell is the system that didn't work and David P, as we know, uh, individual directors of children's services were held to account and dismissed from the jobs as a consequence of that. So um, I, I think transparency is absolutely what's required in to the into the system and into the future but I think it is not without its challenges in terms of the whole issue about accountability and how so, accountability and transparency is squared I think is one of the challenges for this next um, next few years. I think we should remember that all leaders make mistakes and our two predecessors met a long time ago to discuss the Tipkin case and it was an unminuted meeting and what transpired at that meeting is still a subject for discussion mm. and uh, argument. And one of the decisions that was made was because a lot of papers had gone missing, it wasn't uh, something to investigate. Now today, we would both say, or at least I would say, you know, that is a reason to investigate if, if papers have gone missing. And in order to take the public with you, you must be transparent and record everything that you're doing in order to retain public confidence. So some of these lessons of transparency are very hard won, but, but hopefully we, we've learned from that. Mm. I mean, as we move towards the end of this, could I just ask you a couple of uh, final questions? Um, today, the health service is under immense pressure, good people working under challenging conditions. What do you see as the biggest systemic vulnerabilities to healthcare at the moment? That's a big question and um, we're just coming towards the end of uh, completing a programme of 20 local system reviews that we were asked to undertake by Secretaries of State in Housing, Communities and Local Governments and the Department of Health. We can only use this power if I ask the Secretaries of State and they agree or they ask CQC uh, to do this. And what they wanted us to do is look at the way the health and care system operates to provide health and care to people aged over 65, i.e. older people's care. Uh, although as they approach 63, I'm not quite sure that 65 is older people, but this was for the very elderly. And um, what we've found is fascinating, that whilst many individual organisations are working to deliver their individual organisational purpose, very many older people with complex comorbid conditions, they will need the help and support not just only of the hospital but of 
community health care, of the general practitioners, uh, of social care, i.e. the need to use more than one service. And what we're finding is that where services break down around individuals, it's in the handoffs between individual organisations. Very often the transaction between each individual professional and that older person in the service or organisation that they work for is probably of a good standard. And older people would say, Dr X was very good, Nurse Y was excellent in the way she engaged with me. Uh, But what we see is on that transfer from, say, care home into hospital or from hospital into care home, or from care home back to home for people to be supported, that the continuity of care isn't there. So I think as collaboration rather than competition becomes the organising principle of the NHS at a local level with STPs, integrated care systems, and how the system works together to provide the appropriate levels of care uh, for individuals is going to be one of the key challenges. That's both within the resources that are currently available and anticipating some of the government statements over the past few weeks that they will find more resources for both health and care. That will be with the additional resources as well. Um, What is clear is uh, in social care in particular, and we said a couple of years ago, social care is approaching the tipping point because resources were not keeping pace with the increase in the numbers of older people who required access to that care. So people were getting, uh, there was a risk that social care would tip tip over, it would fall over, uh, both the quantum of care that people were offered and the quality of that care that was offered were likely to be compromised unless more resource was found. We still uh, subscribe to that analysis. So I think there's two issues, Rob, in answer to your question. Uh, how more resources found for health and care and then how that system works collaboratively in the interest of the people that it's there to serve. Thank you. And that would also explain why we need to integrate the two national ombudsmen for local government and health uh, and parliamentary issues because of the need to effectively coordinate uh, health and social care. Two final questions. Um, You say you're 63... Conrad Adenauer was 69 when he became Chancellor of West Germany and he had a good 12 years. So what, what are you going to do next? The uh, truth is, I don't know. Um, first thing I'll do is I'll take a holiday. Um, I've managed to persuade my wife to uh, have eight weeks in, um, in Spain and maybe Portugal, uh, maybe drive back through France. And um, uh, we'll, we'll try that. But um, uh, work-wise, I, I want to continue to be active. Um, I still feel I've got energy uh, to make a contribution, but I think it's time to do it in a slightly different way than I've done it over the past 40 years. So maybe a much more portfolio or pluralist approach, uh, perhaps some non-executive work, maybe some uh, inquiries, investigations, if people thought my, my skills could make a contribution to that. I know during my career I've been helped by people who've given me advice and guidance and opportunities so if there were some leadership coaching opportunities, uh, I'd be interested in that. But, but I don't know, Rob. I, I'd, I'd like to do something slightly outside of health and care uh, a little bit. Um, I'm interested more broadly in social policy. The things that I said about social justice um, go beyond um, just health and care. So if there were trustee roles in the voluntary sector or maybe some work in universities, um, 
about a broader social policy, then I'd be interested in those. But at the minute, um, I'm going to just take some time to, um, I think the word is decompress uh, from the role that I've had and uh, think about the future. So will you be going to watch Blackburn Rovers during this period of decompression? Well, I would hope I'd be going to watch Blackburn Rovers in the Championship. So let's see uh, if they can follow your own football team and um, achieve something this year. It's not been the happiest of times. Um, but, um, yeah, a bit more time uh, to myself, a uh, bit more time to my wife, who's supported me fantastically during the past uh, 40 years. Um, she's been with me all during that time and um, uh, just put a little bit back into the personal relationships that I've got. They take a tremendous toll for those of us that do these national jobs and I think it's now time just to, to march to a different beat than I have been doing. Final question. I mean, it, at PHSO, one of the thrilling things about working here is that 40% of our staff are new, they're young graduates, they're in their early 20s, they're setting out in their public service careers. What advice would you give to people in that position today on the basis of your magnificent career in public service? Again, it's a really great question. I think two things. Uh, It goes back to what I said earlier about purpose. Be clear what your purpose is and why you're in the job. Uh, the worst position we can find ourselves in is uh, to be completely unaligned in our values with the organisation and the work that we're doing. The most rewarding and satisfying position we can be in in our jobs is to find our personal values aligned with the values of the organisation. You're a long time working and doing a job which isn't giving you satisfaction and feedback is uh, is a really, really tough. So uh, I feel immensely privileged for having my values aligned with the jobs that I've been able to do. And second thing is, enjoy it. I would put no uh, more advice into it than that. You, you are an incredibly long time working and um, enjoy every minute of what you do. The jobs in the public sector, they're hard, they're challenging, but they're an immense privilege to do these jobs and um, we regard it as such and enjoy every minute of what you do. Uh, so David Behan, thank you very much indeed. It's been stimulating and very interesting to hear your views. Thank you. Our next guest on Radio Ombudsman is the European Ombudsman, the Ombudsman of the European Community, Emily O'Reilly. This is Rob Barron signing off, wishing you a good day. Thank you for listening to Radio Ombudsman. We'd love to know what you think, so please leave a review or comments. If you like what you hear, please share and subscribe for future editions.